book of Psalms, that's the hymn book of God's people, because he's promised that he would inhabit the praises of his people, and we'd like to look at Psalm 1. As you find your place there, I just want to thank you for your kind invitation, not only that I could be with you, but also that Nancy would come along with me, and we're already enjoying our, our time away from home. North Carolina seems a long time away. In fact, it's way past my bedtime right now. But I'm glad you're awake, and I'm also glad our brother Brian and Marlene Gunning are here. We've enjoyed some good fellowship over the years, and have been looking especially forward to hearing his ministry, and we're off to a good start in, in 2 Timothy. I got to tell you, you folks here at Claremont, you know it was love at first sight when we met many of you over at Yosemite National Park. You know, a lot of people think the, the scenery is the most beautiful part of Yosemite, but I think it was the fellowship we enjoyed with many of you, and uh, we are, are looking forward to a good time this weekend. You know, the best part of any conference is the fellowship right after we close in prayer. And uh, we're going to close in prayer at 9 o'clock and enjoy some fellowship around some refreshments, and that's when we can really enjoy interacting with each other, encouraging one another, each other by the other's faith. And we're looking forward to a time like that, not only tonight, but also through the rest of the weekend. For the part of ministry that I would like to share with you, what God has laid on my heart, it is looking at the Lord Jesus in a couple of the Psalms. And so tonight we'd start in Psalm 1, looking at the blessed man, the blessed man of Psalm 1. And then tomorrow, we'd like to look at our heavenly bridegroom, as he's presented in that nice wedding psalm, Psalm 45. And then with the Lord's help, we're going to look at ourselves on Sunday afternoon in Psalm 45 as the bride of Christ. And you know the bride's part, just like the beautiful hymn, Emmanuel's Land said, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. So we're going to be doing that, starting right now in the wonderful book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Please follow as I read. I am using the New King James translation. It says in Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now look at verse 4, if you will, where it says, The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I'd like you to hold your place in Psalm 1 just for a moment. And let's go over to the Gospel of John chapter 14. John chapter 14, I'm not going to tell you the verse till you get there. Because if I tell you it's verse 6, you'll say, oh, I know that verse. I'd like you to look at John 14, 6. And we have to be careful with familiarity, don't we? It can really rob us of a blessing. So as I read in John 14, 6, I'd like to just have you in your mind superimpose this verse from John over the psalm that we just read 
and we'll help each other along in this. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, John 14, 6, we know that verse, and we know how it presents the Lord Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Come right back to Psalm 1, if you will, because in Psalm 1, we read all about the Lord Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. There is that great big difference, isn't there, in this nice psalm that is the first psalm of the book of God's people, their hymn book, with 150 songs to the glory of God. And this psalm, though many of them have an inscription of who the writer is, this psalm remains anonymous because we don't know actually who penned the words. But we, the theme of the psalm is definitely not anonymous because it could be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the difference, didn't you, reading verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 1 compared to verses 4, 5, and 6. Now the difference is grammatical. I hope I didn't lose anybody there. The difference is grammatical. Verses 1, 2, and 3, you notice, they're all written in singular form. Blessed is the man. And not only that, but verse 2, his delight. And verse 3, he shall be. It's all singular. It's speaking of one man, the blessed man. But when you come down to verse 4, we're speaking in a plural sense. And the, the reason is very simple, isn't it? Because if you look for the righteous man, you're only going to find one. When we look on earth, there's none righteous, no, not even one, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right, that's the righteous right hand of the Father. And so we see the Lord Jesus as the only one that can qualify Psalm 1. Now, I know there are wonderful commentaries, and they'll say, you know, Psalm 1 gives us a great standard to aspire to. And that's true, but the bottom line is none of us get there. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and this great high standard. And so when we read in Psalm 1, isn't it nice to look past ourselves and everyone else around us and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see him in verse 1. This is Psalm 1, verse 1, as we, as we see him as the blessed man. Now, before we start verse by verse, let me just mention to you something that was given to me by a man named Stan Ford. Stan Ford from England, some of you know his ministry. He's with the Lord now, but when he got saved, he was going up for a boxing title in Britain, and the Lord saved him out of boxing. But I tell you, when he used to preach, you felt like you were getting beat up a little bit. And uh, he had a wonderful way in ministry, but when you were talking with him personally, he was just as, as meek and gentle as a lamb. Talking with him and a few others, he made the passing comment one day to us, and he said, you know, I was thinking, I, I can't say it with a British brogue, you understand. Mine comes out like with a southern accent. But he was, he was saying, I was thinking the other day that the blessed man of Psalm 1, and that's what planted the seed in my heart. He said, the blessed man of Psalm 1 
became the forsaken man of Psalm 22. In order that the foolish man of Psalm 14 could become the happy man of Psalm 32. And he tucked that away. I am praying that every one of you will remember that. You even have a little bit of a help on the screen to remember those four men of the book of Psalms. The blessed man of Psalm 1 became the forsaken man of Psalm 22 in order that the foolish man, that's like me and like you, of Psalm 14 could be the happy man, also like me, hopefully like you, of Psalm 32. So let's look at the blessed man of Psalm 1, and here's what we see about him. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. I want you to be thinking about the first part of John 14, 6, I am the way. Nor stands in the path of sinners, I am the way. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It really does present the Lord Jesus Christ as the way. Not walking, not standing, and not sitting. All having to do with the way. Well, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll have a little play on words here. He wouldn't walk in the way of the ungodly. He wouldn't stand for it, and it didn't sit well with him either. And so we look at the way, and the way that the Savior went was so far above board, he was absolutely perfect. And in his glorious perfection, even those that were close to him and knew him best gave declaration of the testimony of his person in his perfection like this. The Apostle Paul, of whom we've heard some about already this evening, who was probably the greatest servant of the Lord, as well as the highest academic mind serving the Lord in his day, when it came to his declaration about the Savior's perfection, he said, he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Simon Peter, on the other hand, a man of action, he wrote in his epistle, he did no sin. You know, Simon Peter, he was quick to talk, wasn't he? Sometimes, like me, his mouth would speak before his mind was engaged. And sometimes he would speak even to deny the Lord, but of the Lord Jesus, he said, there was no guile or deceit in his mouth. That's a, that's a testimony, isn't it? Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he was the closest to the Lord, even leaned on his breast. And you remember what he wrote about him in 1 John? In him is no sin. You look at the way that the Savior went, and it was a way that was blameless, and not only blameless, but a way that was sinless. He would not sin because he could not sin. That's the way our Savior went, and we look at the way he trod, and it was a way that was far above board in every way. He's also, according to verse 2, the truth. So be thinking of the truth, and we read in verse 2, of Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You know, this verse really uh, speaks to the, the heart and then the head. Now think of it for a moment. It says, first of all, to the heart, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's speaking of his heart. You know, the psalmist spoke prophetically from the Lord Jesus Christ's perspective, saying this, then I said, Behold, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight 
to do thy will, O my God, and thy law is written within my heart. And so when it comes to the heart of the Son of God, it was all completely on the truth of God. Thy word is truth. And also in verse 2 it says, and in his law he meditates day and night. He not only was dwelling on the word in his heart, but he was thinking about the word. He was the, actually the word personified, wasn't he? The living word of God who tabernacled among us and took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And so we see the Lord Jesus who is, as he said, I am the way, I am the truth. I love verse 3, don't you? Verse 3, well, it speaks all about life. You knew that, didn't you? Because that's what John 14, 6 says. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so verse 3 says, he shall be like a tree planted. Well, that's some of the components of life right there. The whole root system. I remember in physical science growing up, and our teacher said, when you look at a tree, what you see above ground is equal to what is below the ground. And so we had a, a beautiful oak tree in the front of our home, and after we finished building our house, it started looking poorly. So we called... We didn't call a tree cutter, we called an arborist. We said, what about this oak tree? He said, you gotta take it down. It's leaning toward your house, it's not gonna make it, and so he cut it down. I said, my, my science teacher told me there's as much under the ground as there is above the ground when you look at a tree. I said, is that true? He said, well, not exactly. I said, I knew it. He said, there's actually more under the ground than there is above the ground, huh? And, uh, well, he took the tree down. You know, it was a living tree, but it had to come down. And we asked him if he would, uh, wouldn't mind just go ahead and, and uh, uh, chew up all the roots and get, get the whole stock out and, and take the stump out so we could put a new tree in there. He said, that's fine. He said, but, but you can't plant another tree in there for at least three or four months. I said, why is that? And he said, well, all those cells are still alive. And he said, they'll continue to pull all the nutrients from that area. Still alive, and Nancy said, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I said, well, we got over it pretty quick, huh? All right, so, you know, you get the whole pile of chips there, and you realize this is a living thing. Even, even Job said, there's hope for a tree. Even if it's cut down, it'll sprout again, because it's hard to stop life. And that's what the Lord Jesus is. He's the life, like a tree planted with the root system. And then he says, like, it's planted beside the rivers of water. You've got to have water if you're going to have life. Thirdly, he says, it brings forth fruit in its season. It's productive. It's not just existing. And then fourthly, its leaf also shall not wither. Do you remember the word photosynthesis? I mean like great big screens just bringing in all the sunlight. Where there's light, there's life. And you'll only find that in the one who is the light and became the life the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, he says, whatever he does shall prosper, flourishing. Well, if you don't mind me getting a little bit more botanical with you, uh, we planted some nice bushes in front of our house, and one side was doing great where they had the water, and the other side looked like it was, well, it looked like it was dead. The one bush was dead. So we, we pulled it up and took it back to the nursery. And we took it back to the nursery, and we said, this bush we bought here six months ago it's dead. Will you, 
Will you make it good? It's got a warranty. He said, that, that bush isn't dead. Go put it back in the ground. And we put it back in the ground, and we started watering it, and it started growing. And he explained to us something very important. Now, you might want to make a few notes here, okay? He said, the first year you plant something, it's going to sleep. The second year, it's going to creep. And the third year, it's going to leap. And so don't give up on life. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into a world that was in darkness, asleep. And it wasn't long, was it? before the message that he brought through the teaching of the gospel and the training of his disciples and sending them out into the world, what happened? Well, it started to creep till finally to the very ends of the earth, the gospel has gone forth. One day, the prosperity of the life in the Son of God is going to find its complete fulfillment. And when will that be? When, well, if you turn to the very last chapter of your Bible, you'll see how it all finishes up. Look in Revelation chapter 22. We'll be right back to Psalm 1 in just a moment. But we see essentially the same components of life from this great theme of a tree of life from Genesis, stopping in Psalm 1, going all the way to the last book of the book of Revelation, and in the last chapter of that book, Look in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. It's marvelous, isn't it, to see the tree of life even here from Genesis to Revelation. And in Revelation 22, verse 2, it says, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river, there's the river, was the tree of life, there's the tree, which bore 12 fruits, there's the fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month, there's the prosperity and the leaves, there are the leaves of the tree that were for the healing of the nations. We had the components of life in Psalm 1. We have the complements to the components of life in Revelation 22. And you have a river that's flowing. You have a tree of life that's growing. You have the leaves that are healing and you have the fruit that's bearing. This is all about life, isn't it? There is no doubt that we're looking and it's easy to see overwhelmingly that we must be speaking in Psalm 1, verse 1, of the way, verse 2, of the truth, and verse 3, of the life, the blessed man of Psalm 1. He became the forsaken man of Psalm 22. Would you look there with me for a moment, please? Just in the first verse, because Psalm 22 is a question. In fact, of the seven statements of the Lord Jesus from Calvary, from the cross, it is the only question of the seven statements. Not only that, if I have the chronology correct, it's in the very center of those seven statements. The very heart of what happened at Calvary is captured in this question. And in Psalm 22, verse 1, we read this question that the Lord Jesus spoke from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we listen as the hymn writer wrote, O oh, hear his all-important cry, Eli, lama, sabachthani, draw near and see the Savior die. Where? On the cross, on the cross. This is what the Lord Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Today he spoke to the thief to his side, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then to his mother, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And then this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it, everything seems to pivot on that question. He went on to say, I thirst, yet he made the rivers and the springs and the streams that quench our thirst, and yet he thirsted, his tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth. Then he said, with just one word, a shout of victory, it is finished. Think of it. This is the victory cry from Calvary's cross. And then in full control, you remember he said, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it back again. And at the very moment, he bowed his head at Calvary's cross. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When we come back to that middle statement and that question, why? Why was he forsaken? Well, you and I know the answer to it, don't we? The answer, of course, some have said is Psalm 22, verse 3, where he says, But you are holy who inhabits the praises of Israel. Because he was holy and the Lord Jesus took our sin upon him, for that reason he was forsaken of his God. But the bigger picture really is this, isn't it? Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the answer, isn't it? How the blessed man of Psalm 1 became the forsaken man of Psalm 22. Why would he do all this? Well, turn in your Bibles in the book of Psalm again to Psalm 14. And realize it was in order that the foolish man of Psalm 14, that's you and me, the foolish man of Psalm 14. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. We know that's true. And yet a fool just keeps right on saying no to God, no God, there is no God. And so I was just taking a little survey of some of the fools in the Bible. Can I share those with you? You know, over in the book of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, you've got a, a prosperous fool. What made him a prosperous fool? Well, he had, he had an increase of goods and wealth. Now, you, you don't have to be a fool to have an increase of goods and wealth, huh? They do increase, they also decrease, huh? <clears throat> what was so foolish about that? All of us would commend it, and even the Lord would say, you know, we need to be planning ahead. But his problem was he became soulish about all of his material gain. He said to his soul, soul, take thy rest. Thy goods are increased. <laughs> you know, when you start possessing material things deep down in your soul, you're getting into God's territory. And the Lord Jesus, as he explained this prosperous fool and the problem, he said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose will these things be? 
Well, the soul belongs to God, and he was a prosperous fool. He thought everything in life was, was just consisting of the things that he possessed. And the Lord Jesus said, you'd be a fool to believe something like that. Not only that, but there's the proud fool. Let me have you turn to the book of Proverbs. I love Proverbs 26, and I'd like you to turn there, please, because, well, we just finished reading it not long ago in our, in our daily reading, uh, following the choice cleaning calendar, if you use that schedule. But here's what it says in, in Proverbs 26. Let me start with you, please, in verse 3. And look what it says about a fool, okay? Because this is, this is really the impact of the book of Proverbs with all of the pithy state, statements that it has. It says in Proverbs 26, verse 3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. Boy, I tell you what, we're getting down into some serious business quickly, aren't we? I love verse 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now, hang on. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, the Lord can only give you wisdom in that. huh? I think of when the Lord Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember what they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And he said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John the Baptist ministry, was it from God or from men? They had an unholy huddle over on the side and they came back and said, we don't know. <laughs> he said, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. Uh, now, that's how you don't answer a fool according to their folly, uh, lest they be wise in their own eyes. Look at verse 6, if you will. He who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts his own feet off or cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Now, here's a lame statement in verse 7. Like the legs of a lame that hang limp is the proverb of a, in the mouth of fools. I like verse 8 too. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. You're really getting the idea, aren't you? I mean, who would be a fool like this? Hang on, it's coming. Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Verse 10, the great God who formed all things gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. I'm sorry for verse 11. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And we're thinking... You know, what kind of description is this? Well, here's the description of a proud fool. Verse 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, this is the one that gets me because I realize every one of us in the pride of our heart think we know something that no one else knows and that everything's going to be right with us. And in our lost state, we don't even know that we're lost, blind, and miserable. Short, the bottom line is that we are proud fools. Well, let's take it another step. The professing fool. And in the book of Romans 122, Romans 122, uh, this is the one who fits the description or definition of a genius. A genius is somebody who learns more and more about less and less till finally knows something, everything about nothing. And uh, here's the, the professing fool, Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now go back to Psalm 14. Let's just say this about Psalm 14. Not only is he the 
foolish man of Psalm 14. The foolish man of Psalm 14, verse 1, is the perfect fool. <laughs> and I want to tell you why that's true. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You cannot make that statement and have any kind of qualification for it. It reminds me when we were growing up during the space race between the, the Soviets and the U.S., when the cosmonauts went up, they sent back a message to Earth. We have searched space and there is no God. I remember the TV commentator, he answered it so well. He said, step out of the capsule. <laughs> I mean, he was a perfect fool, wasn't he? To say we've searched everywhere. No God is out there. You'd be a perfect fool. And that's exactly the way we are. Before we come to Christ, we couldn't even give the Lord, the time of day, he doesn't even enter our thoughts until we realize we're lost, desperate. And we come to realize, you know, the blessed man of Psalm 1, he became the forsaken man of Psalm 22 for you and for me in order that the foolish man of Psalm 14, as you turn over to Psalm 32, could become the happy man of Psalm 32. What will make you eternally happy? Well, there's only one thing to know the Lord as your personal Savior. He's the only one that not only makes life worth living, He is life itself. And in Psalm 32, verse 1, we read, Blessed, in other words, Oh, how very happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered and to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, that'll make you a happy man and a happy woman, to have the burden of sin released and to realize nothing stands now between you and the Savior when you come to Him. As we go back to Psalm 1, just to close out, Brother Stanford did say, you know the blessed man of Psalm 1? You keeping this in your memory? I'm hoping by tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to be thinking this, huh? The blessed man of Psalm 1 became the forsaken man of Psalm 22 in order that the foolish man of Psalm 14 could be the happy man of Psalm 32. And so I took those four statements that I heard from him, and I added the fifth one to it, and it's don't be the odd man out. Because when you come back to Psalm 1, as I said there is a difference between the first three verses and the last three verses. Verses 1, 2, and 3 is all about one man. It's singular. Verses 4, 5, and 6, it's all about us. It's plural. That means it's all about every one of us together as a whole. And we see that is the exact reflection of everything he is that we're not. Let's just walk through those last three verses. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, the chaff is just the shell or the hull of a grain. There's no life in the shell. <laughs> there might be fiber, but that's about it, all right? So if there's no life in the chaff, whenever they're winnowing a grain, once it's dried and beaten, the chaff is, chaff is separated from the grain. They put it in a, a round winnowing basket. At least 
That's what we watched them do in Africa. And they throw up the grain into the air, and the wind just takes the chaff. It's lighter than air, just drives it right away. Why? Because there's no life, no weight, no substance to it. And that's exactly what it's like without Christ. huh? Where he is the life in verse 1, the unbeliever, there's no life. And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because there's no truth. I mean, that's what the world is saying these days, isn't there? I mean, there's constantly... There's no such thing as absolute truth. You can't know the truth, and you can't speak on any authority that you have the truth. Well, they're getting their wish. There's no truth. Truth has fallen in the streets, but there is one who is still the truth. But when it comes to mankind, let God be found true and every man a liar. They've bought the lie. That's what our brother Brian has been also warning us about in this day and time. If you don't take the truth, buy the truth and sell it not, you'll settle for the lie and you'll fall for it every time. There's, there's no truth. Romans chapter 3 says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. There's no truth. Lastly, verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. There's no way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction and death. But there's one way and only one. I spoke with a man, he was a very nice fellow, but he just was so mixed up when it came to the truth of the gospel. And he said, I've been studying religions lately. And, and I said, I'm sure you've come to the conclusion they're all pretty much the same. He looked surprised. He said, yes, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what I found. And I said, well, that's the big difference, you know. I waited just for a few seconds, and he bit. He said, what difference? I said, that's the difference of salvation and religion. You know, religion is man's efforts to bind himself back to God. But salvation is God's finished work that makes available to whosoever believes the wonderful truth of receiving the gift of eternal life. Well, he said... Well, I don't think that that'd be the only way. I said, well, actually, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, well, surely he didn't mean that there was no other way. I said, well, let me finish the verse. <laughs> no one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? He responded. You know, I always wondered what I would say if somebody said I was narrow-minded and the gospel presenting it. And I think the Lord gave me the right answer. I said, well, he didn't say it to be narrow-minded, even though it is narrow. He made only one way and only one so that we couldn't make a mistake. You know, if he said there are two or three ways, we'd be confused, wouldn't we? If he said there are many ways to God, like they say in this world, it'd be absolute chaos. But to have one way and only one. Now, that makes more sense than anything this world has to offer, doesn't it? It's presented to us personally by the blessed man who became the forsaken man in order that the foolish man might become the happy man. Now, don't you be the odd man out. I guess I have to qualify that before I close in prayer. I heard Alfred Gibbs by a recording once. He was giving a little tip to preachers. He said, you know, when you're saying something, you might be saying it a certain way, but you never know what they're thinking. And he gave this example 
I'm going to apply it to these six verses. Verses 1, 2, 3 compared to verses 4, 5, and 6. Mr. Gibbs said, you could say 1, 2, 3, and they're thinking 4, 5, 6. So here we've been looking at 1, 2, 3, the way, the truth, and the life. Don't be the odd man out. If we're looking at 1, 2, 3, don't you be thinking 4, 5, 6. Because you know the way of the ungodly will perish. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, I trust you do. But if you don't, there's not a better time than right now to put your trust in the one who is the way and the only way. The truth embodied and the life who gives life to all who believe in him. That blessed man of Calvary, he's won my heart from me. He died to set me free. Blessed man of Calvary. We're going to close in prayer, and I've been asked to give thanks for the refreshments, and I am thankful for refreshments. Let's do that right now. Shall we pray? Our Father, how thankful we are that when we come together around your word and we look into its pages, we can see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that your word will continue to live and that you would make this book live to us, that we would see ourselves and see our Savior and rejoice in him who is able to save. Father, we thank you for the fellowship we enjoy and for the refreshments that have been provided as we meet together, speaking to one another and enjoying some of the good things that you've provided for us in life. We ask that you would bless these refreshments and our fellowship together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.